millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to The Conology, the podcast that idolizes one of the world's greatest anime filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've pivoted my career in a direction I don't fully understand. So join us on our quest into the world of Satoshi Kon. Welcome back to the Ghibliotech, or what once was the Ghibliotech. This is now the Chronology, and Michael, I need to know what on earth I've stepped into here, and why are we doing this? Well, we've talked for quite a while about broadening out beyond Ghibli, and listeners over the last couple of years have sent in emails or tweeted at us with suggestions, and we thought that if we ever did do any episodes that weren't about Ghibli films, we'd want to look at films or a filmmaker who had that same quality that Studio Ghibli has, some sense of a unified style or worldview or a clear canon of work that we could dig into. And Satoshi Kon is exactly that. His filmmaking career has a very specific shape, start point and end point. I mean, due to the very unfortunate fact that he died in 2010, 10 years ago, but he made four features and one TV series, and in every way, in, in, in very differing ways, each one of them is fantastic. They build on each other, they complement each other, but they're their own unique masterworks. However, it's quite a thing to throw your curveball 20-odd films in, isn't it, Jake, to go in a completely different direction, completely different filmmaker. So we've had to bring in a ringer for this mini-series. So we're bringing in producer Steph Watts to sit at the table with us and discuss these films, Steph. Yeah, uh, I've been kind of diving into Satoshi Kon's filmography in the past year or so. So this feels like a really fun chance to talk about some of his work. He's fast become one of my favourite filmmakers uh, to watch. So yeah, this is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. It's also going to be quite different. These are not Ghibli films. They're not family friendly. They're quite disturbing at times, very complex. Um, And that's why maybe having an extra voice will be really useful because we need to figure out what some of these films even mean first. So listeners, be warned, if you're coming off the back of Ponyo and Totoro, this is a whole different kettle of fish. And you might want to go away and watch Perfect Blue before you listen to the rest of the podcast because uh, there are a lot of spoilers and we will be discussing them. 
Okay, so Steph, this is a, a film that you're a big fan of. I've just watched it for the first time. Um, very fresh in the mind, and I, I absolutely understand everything that happened in it. The plot is very clear and concise, and I, I, I've really nailed uh, what this film is, I think. Uh, but I think perhaps it might be helpful if you give us a quick synopsis about what actually happened in it. Absolutely. Mima leaves her life as a pop idol behind to become an actress on a crime drama show called Double Bind. When offered a lead role in the show as a rape victim, Mima accepts, despite reservations from her manager. However, the backlash from fans over her career change and a strange website called Mima's Room, written by a fake Mima, begin to worry her. When a stalker appears and people involved in Double Bind begin turning up dead, Mima is thrown into a state of confusion, madness and paranoia. Right. Uh, it weirdly feels like the first day of school again, Michael. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't had this for a couple of years now, back on episode one of Spirited Away, where you literally had to give me the, the, the start of the history of Studio Ghibli. And you spent, what, the best part of 35 episodes gradually explaining that to me. Um, and we've got to do it all over again. Uh, who is Satoshi Kon? That is a huge question, Jake. Of course, stylistically, and who Satoshi Kon is through his films, we'll find out ac across these episodes. That's what's so exciting about starting afresh with a new filmmaker. But this is going to be a big introductory context. Context, if I may use that <laughs> pun. So please strap in. This is going to be quite a long one. I'm really indebted throughout this whole series to a particular writer who I think has written the only monograph on Satoshi Kon's work, and that's Andrew Osmond. Unfortunately, his book on Kon is currently out of print, but all of his work is fantastic. He's got a book on Spirited Away, which has just been republished. I'd recommend checking that one out. But Satoshi Kon, born in 1963. So to put that in context, he's about three years older than Goro Miyazaki. So definitely the next generation along from the sorts of filmmakers we talk about usually on Ghibli Attack. He grew up in Sapporo, Hokkaido, up in the north of Japan. And growing up, he wanted to be an animator. Um, he was influenced by popular series of the day, such as Heidi Girl of the Alps and Future Boy Conan, both from our good old friends Isao Takahata from and Miyazaki. Yes. Exactly. But he also likes a lot more uh, overtly otaku-y, nerdy series like Mobile Suit Gundam and Space Battleship Yamato. But as a reader, he read a lot of manga and had a very varied diet. He read a lot of shoujo manga, manga pitched at girls. So to put that in context, Whisper of the Heart, the Ghibli film was based on a girl's manga, a shoujo manga. And he also read in the 80s as he was growing up as a teenager and into his college years, the new wave of alternative adult-oriented manga made by Katsuhiro Otomo, like Akira. And he was also inspired by live action films, foreign language films. He loves Terry Gilliam, for example. So he's a, you know, a real melting pot of inspirations and influences. He studied art at uh, Musashino University in Tokyo. And while studying there, he started drawing his own manga. He's, he, while we're going through his career, it sounds like he's quite a careerist guy bouncing from one medium to the other. But I'd love to read out this quote from Andrew's book, um, 
just that it sort of gets a sense of Satoshi Kon's self-deprecating way of talking about himself. So this is a direct quote here. I don't have much aspiration, strong desire or passion. I vaguely wanted to make my living by drawing, so I chose to go to art college. I like manga, so I drew some, which got me an award, so I thought being a manga artist was okay. (laughs) So while he was still a student, he drew some sort of indie manga and won an award, and the award was presented to him by uh, Katsuhiro Otomo of of Akira fame. And that forges a relationship that would see him through for another decade or more. In fact, one of his first jobs in anime was as an art assistant on the film version of Akira. And then he would go on then to work on the film after Akira that Otomo wrote and produced called Rojin Z. That puts him on a track into anime. And he worked on the early 90s series of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. I know that's had a recent resurgence. I know Steph's a fan of that. But he worked on the 90s, early 90s version. He also designed backgrounds and layouts for uh, Pat Labor 2, directed by... um, Mamoru Oshii of Ghost in the Shell fame. So even though Khan doesn't come to anime in a Ghibli way, working with the Miyazakis and Takatas, he instead works with these big men of sci-fi adult anime, Mamoru Oshii, Katsuhiro Otomo. In fact, he all the way through this, he was also still drawing manga, um, much of which has actually finally made it out into English through a few collections out there. Um, he worked on what one of these collections that's finally been published in English was a series called Seraphim that he did with Oshii. Um, he also worked on a series called Opus, which has been published by Dark Horse in English uh, that was left unfinished uh, because he was writing that, drawing that right up until the point that he became you know, a fully fledged anime director and left it behind. But that series, Opus, I think, has so many of the kernels that would then grow into what his style would be as a filmmaker. It's very metatextual. It has a a manga artist being sucked into his manga and having to deal with uh, some of the tropes and shortcuts and cliches of the storytelling that he's put into his manga when his characters start talking back at him. It's really great, but if you do go away and read it, which I would recommend, be prepared for the fact that it just doesn't finish. (laughs) (laughs) So he's developing his voice in manga. Let's bounce back to anime for a second, where he's working his way up the ranks. His last stop before taking on a full project as director was a short in the anthology movie Memories in 1995, which was produced and overseen by Katsuhiro Otomo. Khan wrote and storyboarded the opening short in that film called Magnetic Rose, which is very much the standout part of the film, and it's just fantastic. We should probably talk about it someday uh, once we've talked about his actual films. Now, Perfect Blue. This is an adaptation of a novel by a guy called Yoshikazu Takeuchi, who was shopping the idea around town of adapting his novel into a film, a live action film. Apparently they were very close to getting it made, but there was an earthquake in Kobe in 1995 that put the brakes on that. And they thought, oh, instead of it being live action, why don't we pursue it being an animated film? And they approached the animation production company Madhouse, who in the anime world, very well known for various series over the years, Reportedly, Takeuchi goes to Katsuhiro Otomo, who um, illustrated some of his novels, saying, would you like to work on this? Or do you know who could work on this? And Otomo says, I know just the guy who can adapt this, Satoshi Kon. And so he plucks Satoshi Kon out from the, you know, the, the, the backstage of anime, making his backgrounds and storyboards and writing and says, you are going to direct this. So Kon was up for it. 
Although he said to Madhouse that he'll only take on the project if he could completely rewrite it with his co-writer, Sadayuki Murai. Um, and apparently he was allowed to do that as long as he kept three concepts from the original novel, which is it had to have a pop idol in it, it had to have horror, and it had to have a stalker of some kind. But then everything else could be however they've envisioned it. Now, this may be a familiar story to people who've been listening to the podcast for a while. This was initially going to be a straight-to-video, low-budget film, and they planned it that way. However, they then bumped it up to being a full-fledged theatrical feature, at which point, because of the change in production values between straight-to-video and cinema um, animation techniques, um, Khan had to cut the script down, the storyboards that he'd done. So he apparently cut out a hundred scenes from the storyboard, and he actually reveled at that chance because it actually inspired him to experiment with his storytelling techniques. All these sort of like jump cuts and overlapping scenes and um, flashbacks and flash forwards. And weirdly, because of that you know, crisis of opportunity that informs his films going forward and becomes actually quite an important part of his style. That's Perfect Blue. And Perfect Blue premiered at the Fantasia Film Festival in Canada, which starts off a relationship between the festival and the filmmaker that would see them through for the next few films. And get this, it was the only Satoshi Kon film to get a UK release, a very limited one in both London and Edinburgh, but it then came out on video straight after, uh, released by Manga UK at just the right time where there was that boom in sort of cult horror anime video in the late 90s. So it developed a bit of a cult following. And it didn't go unrecognized or unnoticed in the States either. It had a building reputation and was optioned to be remade in the States by Darren Aronofsky. This is a story very often told about Perfect Blue. Darren Aronofsky very inspired by it, influenced by it, and then inserts a couple of hat tips and homages and shots into his films that are definitely ripping off or inspired by Perfect Blue. There's one specific shot in Requiem for a Dream. And I think a lot of Black Swan, his psychological horror, is based on Perfect Blue, just in a different setting. Ballet dancing rather than pop idols in Japan. But that's it. I can take a breath now. That's taken okay. us con from birth to blue. Um, but... Something that we've we've mentioned before on the show, Michael, was that you first watched Princess Mononoke uh, in a double bill with the first Harry Potter, and that cemented your love of Ghibli. Do you remember the first time that you watched a Satoshi Kon film? Oh, I can't pinpoint the first time. I think I would have heard about it by reputation because it was butting up against what was seen in the UK as the Asia extreme boom, where you had ring and dark water etc coming out and being marketed in a specific way and you did have the harder end of anime from manga uk being positioned in a similar way and i definitely knew about it back then and i was also a really big darren aronofsky fan um, when i was a teenager particularly his first two films pie and requiem for a dream and that connection turned me on to con Steph, do you know when you first watched Perfect Blue? Was this the first one you saw or did you come back to it after another con film? Yeah, this was the first one I saw. Um, I think the first time I saw it was at the cinema, which is a fantastic way to see it for the first time. And um, my partner, Campbell, had seen it on DVD and was like, you need to watch this film, kind of dragged me to the cinema to see it. Um, and I didn't really know anything that was about to come either. 
um, which I feel like is a fantastic way to watch this film for the first time, not knowing what it's about, what's going to happen. And very handily, that's the exact situation we put Jake in. (laughs) So we're going to have to see what you made of it, Jake. Let's do it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Jake, you've now watched 20, 25 films from Studio Ghibli. Uh, and this is quite a different turn. Um, was there anything that you kind of first off noticed that was different from the Ghibli films in Perfect Blue? Tell you what, guys, it's, it's not a Studio Ghibli film, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what you're doing to me here. I mean, you, we started this out in a in a land of like lovely dragons and forest creatures and soot sprites and beautiful meals. And and now it's a world of young women getting exploited in the entertainment industry, um, like the blossoming internet fandoms and the awfulness of them and just general grimness and psychological deconstruction. Um, Tell you what, though, it's very good. Very, very good. (laughs) (laughs) Loved it. Absolutely loved this film. Um, And, I mean, yeah, I had a quick look at the original review from Empire by Kim Newman of this film. And with so many first features from any director that comes onto the scene, the, the phrase one to watch is used a lot and rarely does that phrase actually pay off and i haven't seen any of the other films yet but i think this is one of those instances in which the phrase one to watch is maybe allowed to be used jake at what point did you realize you weren't in kansas anymore (laughs) well uh, i mean almost had a bit of like whiplash of that feeling because i thought that i had it when the film started when it opens with these kind of 
Gundam Power Ranger-esque robot fighters in the very first moments. And I thought, okay, right. It's that kind of anime. This is like the the anime that I've been shielded from. Um, and then within a minute, it pulls out of that. And actually, we're in very much a real world situation. So I've had two types of anime thrown at me within two minutes, neither of which I've fully been uh, allowed to explore. And then from that... Um, the film gradually kind of keeps peeling back layer upon layer of itself and falling deeper and deeper in love with it. I thought it was magnificent, but there's just, there's just so much. And amazingly, it's all crammed into 83 minutes and looking ahead at the run times of the other films of his, not that we judge a film on how long it is, but I mean, he's cramming huge amounts in there. And I love that idea of having to lose a hundred scenes of storyboards into the story and fit it all in here because the way that all of the scenes overlap is incredible and you mentioned how much he's inspired by live action that's one of the things that really popped out at me is how much this film uses things that we might recognize as live action techniques and live action editing to Hmm really develop on the story and develop on the themes of it and it's fascinating to think that that wasn't there in the foundations of it yeah I think especially as well when you're coming from um watching Ghibli especially Miyazaki where he's we've kind of gone over uh the fact of him starting a story and then kind of just throwing away the storyboard and just doing whatever he feels like this feels so structured and you can see like every single shot and edit has been thought about um and thinking about how that actually structures the story because i mean once we get properly into that confusion and Mima being confused about what's going on you need that more than ever um so that it doesn't kind of fall apart and th- these techniques, just just to expand on that, um, it's things that you would think of as being like very planned out on a live action set, like match cuts for the beginning and ending of a scene and the overlapping of dialogue from one scene into another. But because this is about someone's identity gradually splitting in some ways, by doing those amazing overlaps and by almost feeling like it's one continuous journey and really trying to hide the joins between any of the scenes it becomes so fluid and what could be a real mess because it's throwing so many things at you because it is so fluidly made you can descend into it really easily it's in andrew's book that he says that con and his co-screenwriter would write these drafts and then probably spend five or six hours just figuring out what the drafts meant because they'd be going off in such different directions, peeling away the layers of identity and psychology and making it really messed up. But before we get deep into that stuff, I quite like to talk about the almost the superficial layer of this. The animation style is very different to Ghibli, certainly with the approach to character design. With Ghibli, particularly Miyazaki or the Miyazaki-influenced movies, there's a particular sort of figurative, cartoony, idealized style to his characters. Whereas cons are a bit more realistic, sometimes even grotesque in their realistic 
um, caricaturing of actual people. And it can make it seem ugly compared to Ghibli. Was that something that you felt, Jake? Well, I wouldn't say it was ugly. I think that like, there are moments in the film that are very impressive. Yeah, maybe impressive is the word rather than beautiful in any way. And there's it's going for a reality, but it's a grungier reality. We, we, we've we briefly mentioned films like Your Name and Weathering With You from Shinkai. And those films are based in a reality, a hyper-reality, and it's so glossy and lovely, and it's trying to make the real world look beautiful as it is. And this is not that same real world. But I still found it appealing. Maybe that's just me being nostalgic for being in Japan. Um, But I can kind of see the, the manga artist in it because it doesn't have the the sprawl that you might get in a Ghibli film where we talk about those never-ending landscapes or anything. Every frame feels like you could almost see the boxes of a comic around it. And, yeah. and that felt different to me. And okay. the way that the, the faces are used, um, people might almost, although there isn't a camera, look directly into it and you feel... like faces really filling up the frame and being a quite interrogative force in it it's going to be a recurring theme throughout this because a few of his films and then the tv series paranoia agents are all set in tokyo or specific districts of tokyo and as a guy who grew up up in the north japan who came down to tokyo for university i think con always you know looked at tokyo for inspiration I love that we do still have train scenes. We still have nighttime landscapes, looking out of a window, seeing the blinking lights and so on that we, that we, that we may recognize from certain films that we've remarked on in the past. But I like, Jake, where you say that it's quite boxed in because that allows another thing I love about Satoshi Kon's work to really come to fruition, which is his hyper-detailed production design and Mima's actual flats that she goes to. We've seen her live the pop idol lifestyle she's done this farewell concert and it's flashing back and forth almost like nicholas rogues don't look now's you know famous sex scene where you're seeing the post-coital and pre-coital at the same time you're seeing the concert experience and the glamour of that at the same time as her going home on the train going to the supermarket and going into her dingy little one-bedroom flat and that flat is just packed with detail you can just pause the blu-ray really beautiful blu-ray by the way and just drink in all the details and i think we all remarked on the fact that she has a playstation (laughs) (laughs) squirreled away in the corner like what is that in this console in the corner but the detail is astounding oh yeah absolutely and what is great about it is that it's it's not necessarily the details that we have spoken about on previous films where i think oh you need all of these details so that you can feel like you can travel into this world this we can f- imagine that room but it doesn't necessarily invite us into it i think the mm. the film always keeps us always at, at an arm's length to it and I, that's very much in tune to this idea of everyone always kind of looking at mima and that she is always the object of something or someone and the way that those bedroom shots are framed are more like we have a camera on her than we are there with her. 
Hmm. And it, it, this is a bit flippant of me, I realize, but I love how Hayao Miyazaki's view of animation is to use the power of animation and Im- imagination behind it as the engine to create these amazing worlds, moving castles, enchanted bathhouses, etc. And what Satoshi Kon does with animation is recreate an Apple Mac desktop <laughs> in, in uncanny detail as she's installing the internet in her flat, which looking back now is quite, you know, quite, quite funny, really, quite cute that circa 1997, having a web page, having the internet was something that was a bit cute and unique and strange. Oh, yeah. I, lo- actually... I love having the, the line, this is the World Wide Web. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, I think, highlights for me how maybe Satoshi Kon was at the beginning of the internet, but he completely, as a almost as a futurologist, could see where that was going. Because this film could be so contemporary to today, to... Um, to the way that stardom, the all-access social media we have, the OnlyFans cam girls of the world, it's its all there within this film, as well as its look at fandom and the way that fans want to own or possess while they obsess over their fan objects. Yeah, I think he really captures that realisation that kind of Mima's computer is a bit of a two-way screen in a sense, because she's, she's looking at what's going on out there but then the stuff that she's reading is from somebody else looking back at her it's quite a disturbing idea yeah and it's it's not just that sense of projecting your identity onto the internet that has become an issue with social media addiction and what people want to present themselves as on instagram or twitter or whatever there's also the the sense of ownership that fans will have for their idols and me mania the stalker character here is utterly obsessed with a character that Mima plays rather than the person and as soon as the person breaks away from the idealized version that me mania has that tears them apart and it's kind of this feral fandom rather than it is any appreciation for the person at all and who they might really be. And that is absolutely what happens now. And it's just amazing that he was thinking that that is where the internet would go 23 years ago. Yeah, it made me feel quite weird about uh, how much I share online that is probably far too personal, like... Um when she's reading the stuff about what she buys at the shop and she's like, I always have to have cow browned milk or something like that. And it's like, I've probably just said that I love a certain type of milk on the internet. And like, why did I do that? And why would you think that sharing that with loads of strangers is, is normal? Like it's funny going to a film like that, where you're so ingrained in that internet culture, you're looking back at a film that's just on the brink of it and looking at how people actually respond to this sudden kind of lack of privacy that you could be exposed to. So there's the the stuff about the internet that feels like like the, you could release this film now, just update the tech a bit, and it would still feel absolutely present. Um, but the stuff about Mima's exploitation within the entertainment industry feels like it has been ripped out of the last few years as well. And 
I'm like, there will be countless articles already written about how Perfect Blue <laughs> predicted our current era. Um, there's no shortage of those. But to reiterate it, 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 it is amazing. And there is some some rough scenes in this film and it, and it is hard to watch. It's it's not just the gore that's horrible. Like there, it's the the violent exploitation of Mima. And um, there, there is a scene when she is an actress playing a role in which she's being sexually assaulted. And it is really harsh to watch. And the, the manager actually leaves it, which is very much how you feel as a viewer wanting to exit from the situation. But then turns the whole scene on its head by then flashing back and forward from the discussions about whether or not to do that scene and how that would progress in the industry and then pausing the scene and seeing that she's okay and that uh, her and the actor that is taking part in the scene are like checking on each other in that moment. And it's really so much of the conversation that has been had across all of entertainment for the last century and beyond about you've got, you've got to do this thing to get yourself a leg up. You've got to prove that you're able to do this thing. You've got to sit on the casting couch and it's getting into that and doing so in a very powerful way. But Michael, you left a note in there about whether or not it, it almost goes too far on this. I think this is what, is so compelling about Satoshi Kon's films is there's always some aspect to it where there isn't a button on the storytelling. It doesn't tie everything up. So it's something that we can look at, rewatch, discuss, and dig into further. And around the, those key scenes of exploitation, there is the, the, when she's coerced into filming that scene in the series where they say, oh, you know, we could pump up your role in this series, make it recurring if we can have a rape scene. But then there's also the exploitative photo shoot she does where it's with a notorious photographer who's known for trying to get young women to strip off for him. And I think what's so fascinating about this film is that it presents this interlocking web of violence, coercion and complicity where you're never really sure what the actual reality of the situation is because you're seeing it in the idealized way, the nightmare way. You're seeing it from her perspective and other people's perspectives. There's no objective perspective of yeah. what happens. And it, it's that arm's length again, of that if mm -hmm. we see something through a lens in some way and that there is some element of fakeness about it, that means it's okay for us to consume it. And with the photo shoot in particular, you're shown the same sequence twice over and you're not sure which one was the real one. You know, what, 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 was, and also, we're never really clear how much agency she has as a person. She has her manager and her handler and her fans and we see the violence through their perspectives. So the violence wrought upon Mima the pop idol is what we're seeing when that sexual assault is happening the, the 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 persona of the pop idol is being tarnished in some way same, same with the photo shoot 
but we don't really get to the heart of what she thinks. Is she complicit? She's actually excelling in the performance at the moment in the sexual assault scene and for the rest of the film as well. And at the end, there's a glint in her eye when she survives and comes out the other end. So it's always tricksy. It's always keeping you guessing. And then with the editing and the way that the film's flowing, as you said, Jake, you're already on to the next scene. I don't know, Steph, what do you make of all this? Uh, yeah, it it's a lot. It's a lot to digest. Um, I do think it's kind of, yeah, that thing of your you're getting Mima's impression of herself and her career, her kind of saying this, I need to do this rape scene because it's going to help accelerate my career as an actress. It's going to help me be taken seriously. Um, and then on the other side, you've got the kind of directors, producers, etc., And all they have to say about it is, oh, Pop Idols make a nice scene. So it's kind of who, who does she see herself as and who do the people that are, supposedly like accelerating her career who do they see her as um and I think that scene is it's yeah even though it's kind of set up saying this isn't real it's just a tv scene and you have these other nods to that as well so when they're um introducing the tv show double bind they have the two detectives kind of laughing and joking before the camera rolls and then when they yell action they kind of go into this really the murderer peeled off the victim's skin or like that kind of really horrific um, dialogue about really violent murder. So you're kind of set up to, to know that the scene they're filming isn't real, but in the moment it feels so real and you see kind of Rumi and her manager really upset by it because in that kind of moment, it is really difficult to separate from that fact. And I think, yeah, I guess if it was being filmed today, they would have, uh, I can't remember what they're called, like a, a sex consultant or something mm. on set. Intimacy her, consultant. Probably. Intimacy consultant, yeah. It's it's a really interesting scene and in some ways, to me, more um, powerful and interesting than a kind of rape revenge scene or something like that where... Um, it doesn't just feel like it's there to shock. It feels like it has a specific need to be there. Mm-hmm. That scene when she decides to do the scene and the scene with the photographer is where her identity starts splitting and she gets these phantom images of pop idol Mima appearing to her and saying kind of, I'm the real Mima, you're a filthy woman now, you're not real. And it's really interesting to see that her deciding to go down this certain path is splitting her identity and kind of she's being haunted by this safely kind of titillating figure that she was compared to the exploitation route that she's going down and the two ways that she could have had it I guess. So this is what is so compelling about this film and why re-watching it keeps in some ways knotting the mystery but as well as loosening it slightly. Usually one person is losing their mind and that's revealed at the end and then you can rewatch it from their fraying perspective all the way through. In this film, three people go mad. You have Mima at the, at the heart of it. You have Rumi and Mimania. And th- in various ways, they're all setting each other off. And so the rape scene and the photo shoot are both actually, could they be more traumatic experiences to the fans, to Rumi and to Mimania, than necessarily to Mima. And is Mima losing her mind because of the stalking, because of the gaslighting of Rumi going on? 
And that's what's really fascinating about it because you find it hard to situate yourself into who is you know, what are you being horrified by and who's being oh, the victim of it, the psychological it's horror. So elegantly done, the flipping between mm-hmm. these that you don't even really notice. You never think, oh, I am in this person's point of view. You are never given a, a sign to say this is reality, this is filmed reality, uh, this is uh, someone's imagination. Nothing is signposted. And it's all through that amazing construction that would have gone all the way back to those storyboards about how can we link these images together so that we can lock people in. Like the the use of mirrors uh, is Mm. something that is so well done in here. And that's something that we would so associate again with live action, like mirror trickery is something that goes back to the, the birth of cinema and how you can use reflections to mess around and do early special effects. And I think maybe that's part of the reason that we got so, we get so invested in this story because of those techniques that become associated with live action. And then you apply that to animation. And then you're thinking, right, I'm seeing animated characters, but the techniques are, that are being used are ones that I'm used to associating with when I can see real people. And again, and it, again we're getting into those twisted realities that the film is so good at. Uh, and again all of that fracturing of these different identities and it can it splinters off in so many different directions but always feels connected into one hybrid mind which i imagine is satoshi Kon's, i suppose i think they also um do they film two separate endings to the double bind show so they have one scene it's like a scene back to back where they have um mima ending this the show with that's right i'm an actress and then another one with her saying that's right i'm a model so it's like they're they're even i don't think they've decided how the show is going to end either so it's like you have these yeah layers on layers of what is the reality that's one where i yeah you see the scene play through twice where the character's being called mima or being called the character's name and you're not sure whether the the sleazy writer of Double Bind has started writing her in. This is something that I, I read, I think I read it in Jonathan Clements and Helen McCarthy's Encyclopedia of Anime, and it's something I've not really seen written about anywhere else, really, or many other places. In the Japanese, she has an accent that slips as she goes through. So even Mima isn't really her actual persona. It's something she's been trained up for she's a girl from the sticks who came to tokyo and has been trained to have a sort of received pronunciation tokyo dialect accent and there's a point early on where she's on the phone to her parents and her accent slips and then the final line where she's finally what free of all of these burdens and uh, horrors that are being visited upon her she goes yeah that's right it's me she delivers that in her natural dialect or accent which is something that's completely lost in english on on, Hmm. on subtitles and an English dub as well but adds another twist yeah to what is a really for something that's such a dark film it ends on a complete like it really sticks that landing so oh, the, well the ending is brilliant and we've we've spoken before about how Studio Ghibli occasionally doesn't know how to do a quick ending that it will try to just wrap things up in 30 seconds and get out of there and that this manages to do that and give you something that is jarring but perfect and 
manages to feel like you're solving the mystery whilst also elongating it even further at the same time. Uh, it's, it ends so, so well. Um, but Michael, is, is it like we, we mentioned like so many things that we think are so forward thinking that this could happen now. Is, is there any misgivings that you've got? Yeah, every time I watch this film, um, and when I rewatched it for this, I wanted to double check I still felt this way. There's, there are things about it that do make me feel icky. And of course, all great horror thriller films are meant to make you feel uncomfortable and ill at ease. Um, but sometimes there are things that are just out of step. And one part of that for me for this film is Rumi Chan. Rumi, the, her manager or her agent or her agent's assistant. When she turns evil and is revealed to be the, the, the puppet ma- mistress behind the strings of the idealized pop idol of Mima that's been haunting her all the way through the film. It it really plays up the fact that Rumi's a, a, a failed pop idol who's become old and overweight. And in the, I think Khan, particularly in this film and some others we may get to, leans into the caricature a bit too much in his animation style and character designs. And this one, when she's being pursued through the streets, it's actually a really elegant and beautiful sequence where you have the pop idol version of evil Mima sort of pirouetting and uh, pogoing along perfectly from rooftop to rooftop and down alleyways. And then in reflections in windows and mirrors and advertising billboards, you see the sweaty, um, panting Rumi dressed in a far too small for her idol's outfit following her and i think that's the sort of thing that now is just tip tipping over into being fat phobic and this is the one character seen of that body type in this film and it's being used against her as a marker of difference a marker of otherness and in fact if you want to go so far as to look at the optics of the that final shot of the fact that she wants to go wants so much to go into to, to, to catch Mima she's pushing herself using her weight as a way of killing herself by pushing herself into the glass it all just comes across as a bit too icky for me really I don't know does that resonate for you guys yeah and also with me mania as well that the stalker who's definitely presented to in a kind of deformed fashion and othered throughout the film compared to all of the other online type guys that also browse the comics too who who are not presented in such a way and actually i think it's a more interesting character if he is just another one of the guys because that is the scary thing about the internet is that you can't see what people look like and it could just be if it is a normal looking person and who hasn't given this look and if it is someone who's unassuming then that is i think a, a scarier thing ultimately and that that's just a little area of that foreshadowing that he didn't quite have the opportunity to get into yeah i suppose it's, it's a cheap shot in a way to have that character be so caricatured but it's all in service of him being a bit of a red herring or a false villain anyway there's somebody else behind him but i think we will see even from just the next film onwards con's characterization and depth and and elegance with with how he treats his characters just improves immeasurably yeah i think um i think if me mania was the kind of the only antagonist in the film it would definitely feel far too lazy but i think thankfully he's not the only the only kind of um 
threat to Mima and I think yeah like watching watching it a couple of times now Rumi feels really tragic to me like she the first time I watched it I was like yeah kind of really against her in the end but then watching it over and over again it's kind of she's this she's kind of everything that the pop idol industry doesn't want from her like she doesn't have Mima's body like she's obviously aged a bit and um is I guess trying to stop Mima from turning into her or kind of having a similar experience to her um in such a harsh industry and I think that and she has so many kind of in that final fight chase scene between them so many grotesque images but using her body like that kind of bit when Mima is um choking her to get her off of her and her face kind of distorts out of the Mima mask into Rumi's face it's yeah I I feel a bit sorry for her I know she's like the the villain but there's so many kind of layers behind her character I think I I, Um, I think maybe this is something I'll get from future rewatches of the film but that that was an area that I found underdeveloped and so I, I didn't get a sense of kind of payoff as much from Rumi's arrival in that final act and if maybe being aware of it now paying closer attention to the development of the story in the first hour or so um that will have more of an impact on me um but i have to say it kind of left me wanting and in the end in in that area of the plot but jake did perfect blue leave you wanting for more con i think we should find out in the final segment but before we do Steph any final comments on Perfect Blue? I would just like to say that I am a huge Sham fan and if they were a real band I would be following them around on their tour buying all their music I'm desperate to know what's in the Sham fanzine right at the start of the movie for 400 yen or whatever it is um, and I love their songs I just think they're great Oh, and, yeah. and there is Shamland the radio show uh, which I yes. mean, if it did exist, you would hundred percent be hosting that. <laughs> so, Jake, this is usually the part in the podcast where we have the leaderboard and Jacob's ladder. We can't really do that as much with this one because we're not going to have twenty odd films to rank. But I'd still like to know where these films land for you. And I've come up with a pun as is my want. We're going to have the popularity contest at the end of every episode. It's going to be a very easy contest for now because there's only one film, but would you (laughs) give The Crown to Perfect Blue? Yes, I would have to say that Perfect Blue is currently the best Satoshi Kon film I've ever seen. But has it made you want to watch more? Are you excited now? Or have we got you off on the wrong foot? I'm very excited. Uh, Next week, we're going to be watching Millennium Actress. Um, which I've been told is an inverted perfect blue. And I didn't think perfect blue could get any more inverted. It's already gone inside itself and then outside itself and around the corner and back again. And apparently we're going to invert it next week too. I will say, Jake, I think Millennium Actress is going to be your bag. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'm going to be really sad if you don't. So I'm very excited. Well, listeners, tune in next episode for our thoughts on Millennium Actress. Until then, let us know what you think about Perfect Blue or Satoshi Kon in general 
on Twitter at Ghibliotech. We also have our email address. The mailbag is open at ghibli at little.studios.com. And also you can follow us individually. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. You can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts and Harold McShiel. Hi, listeners. Thanks for sticking through the credits. Uh, Now, after all that, you might not think there's much relationship between Perfect Blue and Studio Ghibli, but Ghibli does have its own history with pop idols becoming actors. Uh, It was made 10 years after Perfect Blue, but Howl in Howl's Moving Castle is rocking a pretty glamorous pop idol look. And he was voiced by singer Takuya Kimura, who was one of the biggest male stars of the industry at the time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.